This is the Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JED and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor John Graby, Director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Learn more about the center at law.unh.edu. So, John, you published a uh, commentary piece that was published in the New Hampshire Bulletin.com on the basically on the the OSHA lawsuit that went that recently was decided by the United States Supreme Court, National Federation of Independent Business v. Department of Labor, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. More commonly known to, known as OSHA, thank God, because it's a horrible name. Right. Um, I mean, what was the basis of this case before we dive into the implications of the decision? Okay, sure. So OSHA, you know, lots of people probably heard of OSHA. OSHA is a federal agency that enforces workplace safety standards. It was created uh, under a federal statute that was passed in 1970 um, that um, you know is designed to regulate workplace safety. Um, there is a, a, a standard, uh, an emergency temporary standard in uh, that act, which actually obligates OSHA uh, to take emergency action in the event that uh, employees are exposed to a grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards and that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from danger. So if those two requirements are met, OSHA is obligated to take action. OSHA saw COVID-19 as satisfying the requirements of this standard uh, and therefore enacted an emergency temporary standard that said for at least the next six months, all employers with over 100 employees uh, must require that their employees either be vaccinated or that they mask and that they test on a weekly basis. Uh, This emergency standard was immediately challenged in a number of courts around the country. Those lawsuits were consolidated before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, The Sixth Circuit, uh, which was divided, uh, upheld the the lawfulness of this emergency temporary standard, uh, but review was sought in the Supreme Court um, through its so-called shadow docket under which it reviews Uh, emergency orders and stays and and motions for preliminary injunction and stuff like that. Um, And the court in January um, vacated the Sixth Circuit's decision and in fact reinstated the stay and said that OSHA cannot enforce this stay. And shortly thereafter, the Biden administration actually withdrew uh, the standard. And so the standard never took effect uh, in the United States. In this case, brought up all sorts of um, questions with regards to uh, OSHA's uh, authority, uh, questions of whether COVID nineteen honestly was the was reached the level of needing this sort of enforcement. Um, and the court, although there were it was the conservative versus the the um, the more liberal justices for sure were split in this decision. There were there was a lot of uh, writing done when it comes to the decision. So how how did the court rule and why? Yeah, um, I, mean, I think this is a really interesting case because on the surface it's really just a disagreement about the scope of a federal statute and, and in particular about the scope of this um, this provision of the law that requires OSHA to issue emergency temporary standards if these two requirements are met. Uh, And so on the surface, we have six justices, the six 
more conservative members of the court saying that the standards weren't met, that COVID-19 does not uh, constitute you know, a grave danger um, from exposure to a substance or agent determined to be toxic or, or physically harmful or from new hazards. And you had the three more liberal justices in dissent saying, whoa, 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 this is just actually an appeal uh, from uh, a, a, a denial of a stay. Um, and so we should just be satisfying ourselves that OSHA is acting reasonably under the circumstances. And we think that OSHA was acting more than reasonably. But what's really going on underneath the surface is a very, very different idea of how to operationalize text under our constitution. You don't get this so much from the majority opinion. The majority opinion was, was pretty short and was not signed. It was a per curiam opinion, which means issued through the court itself. But you get a sense of where the majority was coming from, from a separate concurring opinion that was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch and joined by Justices Clarence Thomas uh, and Samuel Alito. Um, and Justice Gorsuch says, look, okay, uh, regardless, not not regardless, but you know, leaving aside for the moment what the text says and whether reasonable people could view COVID-19 as falling within the scope of the text, we need to think about this more from a constitutional perspective, from a structural perspective. We need to be aware both of our federalism, which describes our separation of powers between the federal government and the states, and we need to be aware of our horizontal separation of powers among the three branches of the federal government. So we start with federalism and we take note that it's usually thought to be the responsibility of local public health officials mm -hmm. uh, to decide whether to take action uh, in the face of a contagious disease. Which we saw uh, that, extensively through COVID-19 with regards to school districts and such. Exactly right. Um, and so um, it's unusual, he seems to suggest, for the federal government to be intervening when, you know, our, 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 our history and traditions would suggest that regulation should come at the state or local level. But that's not really what the analysis turned on. Rather, it turned on separation of powers. And what he said is basically this. Look, uh, this law was written in 1970. Nobody envisioned this law, regardless of the open-ended nature of the language used, um, as being applicable uh, to a situation like that presented by COVID-19 as as, and as empowering an agency that's charged with protecting workplace safety mm. with effectively acting like a national public health regulator in this way. Um, and so Justice Gorsuch basically calls this the major questions doctrine and says, when an agency, okay, at federal agencies, most of them are under the uh, direction of the executive branch. So they're not legislative agencies, they're executive branch agencies. So when, when executive branch, branch agencies effectively regulate in this, uh, legislate in this way, when they regulate in this way, they're, 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 um, they're effectively legislating. Hmm. Um, and it needs to be really plainly clear, according to, to uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, that the statute gives them the power to do this. All right. Um, and that's required by our separation of powers. Otherwise, you know, you could take language that's enacted out of context and on the basis of it be basically ruled by this unelected, you know, federal bureaucracy uh, that has emerged over the last century or so. And he said, moreover, if you did conclude that the language did authorize this standard, then we have a different constitutional problem coming from the other direction. There we have the problem of Congress handing over to the executive branch 
its legislative authority, its authority to be the rule maker in our constitutional system. All right. So I think so. So, you know, Justice Gorsuch, um, uh, in his concurring opinion, again, signed by two other justices, gives more of a constitutional justification for the reading of the statute than is provided in the unsigned majority opinion. Then you've got the dissent and the dissent couldn't be more different in the way that it approaches these things. Um, the dissent looks at the language. Okay, and it looks at the consequences and it adopts a pragmatic analysis and says, look, this is yes, um, we didn't necessarily have anything directly on point in our history, but we've also not had anything like COVID-19 since 1970. <laughs> you know, this is these are unprecedented circumstances at the time of this writing. 750,000 Americans had died and millions of more had been hospitalized. And that, of course, puts an attendant pressure on the system. They don't really take up the federalism angle, but it's clear that they think that the federal government has a role to play when you're talking about a pandemic that's sweeping not just the nation, but the world, um, and that you can't leave it to local patchwork regulation. Um, and then more generally, they say, you know, um, Justice Gorsuch actually framed his analysis by starting with a question, who decides? Mm -hmm. And he says, in our constitutional order, he seems to suggest local authorities decide or Congress decides. And the dissent comes back and says, yeah, this he's right about that. It is a question about who decides. But the question should be who decides an expert regulatory agency staffed by doctors who have expertise in this area or a court that is not expert in the area and is then relatively insulated from the consequences of its decision. So I think this is a, just a deeply interesting case that, that lays bare the really, really deeply different ways in which the two blocks of the court right now, the conservative supermajority, really, because it's six to three, and then the more liberal um, you know, three justices in the, in the dissent in this case, the, the way in which they approach the question of governmental power. There's a heavy presumption against the government being able to exercise power unless you have a really clear basis for it, for the majority. Whereas I think the dissenters would say, look, we live in a 21st century society that's complicated and is presenting all sorts of complexity and challenge. And we need to read our laws as enabling us as a society to be able to deal with these problems. I love considering when we see the questions like this and how, like what could have made this actually work so that both sides maybe could meet in the middle somewhere on it. I, I mean, would it if OSHA had made the decision to regulate because it was very broad. I mean, when you're talking 100 employees or more, I mean, that that's like a, probably a major, almost a majority of companies across the United States would end up being uh, hit by this. If you have like a couple store locations, for example, it very quickly gets to the point where you're going to reach a hundred employees if you count all your part timers and everything. I mean, if they had said like if you work in warehouse manufacturing, we're going to be in close contact with a hundred or more people on a regular basis or something like that. Would that have made the conservative justices a little more on board with the situation? Well, actually, the, 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 the temporary standard did say that. It did actually make exceptions for people who work outside or people who work alone or people who work from home. Um, and it also created an exception if an employer could show that the workplace was just as safe as it would be with this standard uh, in effect. I, so I don't think that would have made a difference to the majority. I think, you know, nothing in their reasoning would have created wiggle room. You know, let's stipulate that COVID is, is twice or three times as transmissible as it is, you know, and that there were even higher death rates. 
Um, I think what the majority would say, well, in those circumstances, then we could expect our legislature to act. And Congress didn't act. Congress didn't issue this. Um, and they attribute significance to that. Now, one interesting angle on that is, well, that makes you think that the majority would have been okay if Congress had enacted something like this. But think about another recent mandate uh, that was challenged before the Supreme Court. I'm talking here about the individual mandate that's part of the Affordable Care Act. And you may recall that a five justice, it was then a five justice conservative majority, but five justices came together to say, can't regulate uh, the decision to sit out the healthcare market, that's regulation of inaction, and Congress doesn't have the power to do that under the Commerce Clause. So I don't think it's clear at all that this conservative majority would have been okay with it had Congress been the source of this regulation. I think basically they would say anything that would be done here needs to be done on a local level uh, where um, regulators are closer to and more responsive uh, to the people who they're regulating. Is this case an extreme example, or does this open the gates for more lawsuits against other executive branch agencies? Well, I, I mean, that's that's a great question. And I think I think buried within Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion here potentially is really a roadmap uh, for um, for scaling back significantly the scope of federal regulatory power. Um, I mean, we are, you know, uh, again, you know, we're about a century into uh, a vastly uh, expanded federal government when you compare it to the size of the federal government at the time of either the initial founding or even, you know, post-Civil War. Um, and, you know, it, we have uh, relied more and more on administrative agencies mm. over the last century as the world has become more complex and more independent, uh, you know, interdependent and you know the technology. You know the technology <laughs> is has, has has grown exponentially, and I think those who support this would say, "Well, that makes sense. We want experts making decisions and being able to move with dispatch." You know, in the face of new and unknown challenges. Uh, but those who are more concerned about you know democracy and direct representation are really suspicious of that, and saying this is this. This is this branch of government that sort of sits in between the legislative branch and the executive branch, um, and it needs to be reined in. Um, so, I mean, just going back to this case, um, for example, um, if the EPA, you know, we, we, we're all aware of climate change, of course, if the EPA were to start regulating in a way that was, you know, well beyond the scope of regulations that it enacted you know, when the original environmental statutes that created the EPA were, were enacted, you know, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, all these things. Well, you could see this same roadmap being applied to say, look, this is, this is a major departure, it has major political implications. Um, it's a major departure from the status quo by this unelected agency. We think it fails this major questions doctrine. Or, if you know the court does think that these statutes are handing the EPA this power, it could revive this so-called non-delegation doctrine, which is again the idea that Congress can't hold hand over its lawmaking power. Now, interestingly, there were all sorts of cases in the 1930s and before where, um, as the emerging administrative state started to grow, where people successfully did challenge federal statutes as delegating power unconstitutionally to executive branch agencies. These were the non-delegation decisions. But the Supreme Court has not found uh, there to be an unconstitutional delegation of power since 1937. So this opinion suggests 
the Supreme Court could be interested in reopening a door that's been shut since 1937 um, and placing limits on the ability of Congress to hand regulatory authority over to federal executive agencies. Well, we'll be staying tuned for that and watching the Supreme Court. Thank you so much, Professor John Graby, Director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service, law.unh.edu slash Rudman to learn more about that uh, awesome institute over there. Uh, I'll be posting in the episode description the his commentary piece that was published in the NewHampshireBulletin.com, The Workplace Vaccine Decision and Its Implications for Federal Regulatory Power. Thanks for listening to Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help start word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite pack, favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.